Hello, everybody. Thank you all so much for coming. I'm very excited about this particular episode. So one of the fundamental principles about investing that a lot of people like Peter Lynch and Warren Buffett and uh, several successful investors have talked about is you should know what you own and why you own it. So if you're an active investor, um, you, you have a bunch of stocks in your portfolio and each stock in the portfolio, we should know a little bit about the company. We should know what the economics of the company look like and we should be able to predict with, with a reasonable degree of accuracy what the future of the company is going to look like. So uh, that, that's what um, investors, great investors like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch, that's what they mean when they say, know what you own. And one of the best ways to uh, know about businesses is uh, to read their financial statements. So every time a business puts out a 10K or a 10Q, 10K is the business's annual report. 10Q is its quarterly report. Um, in the US, every, every time a business puts out one of these uh, filings, uh, it's going to contain a set of financial statements. And those financial statements include the balance sheet, the income statement, the cash flow statement, and uh, the statement of shareholders' uh, equity. And if you read these financial statements and the notes to the financial statements, uh, over a period of time, uh, you will develop a good knowledge about the economics of the business. Uh, but for that, we have to know uh, what exactly to look for in these financial statements, how exactly to read these financial statements. So that is one of the most important jobs of an investor to read the financial statements to figure out uh, whether this is a high quality business or not, and whether the quality is improving over time or not improving over time, things like that. And so reading the balance sheet, which is one of the key financial statements, uh, is an absolutely essential skill for an investor to possess. And that is why I wrote this thread uh, uh, to, to help people figure out uh, what exactly uh, uh, is there in the balance sheet, how a balance sheet is structured into assets and liabilities, what kind of insights we can get uh, from reading the balance sheet. That's why I wrote the thread and that's why we are uh, doing this call to, to discuss some of these uh, key uh, points. Uh, now, one, one key purpose, uh, so there are, uh, as I see it, there are three key purposes to reading the balance sheet. One purpose is to figure out uh, how many um, assets or uh, how, how much in uh, value of the assets uh, how much in assets does a company need uh, in order to produce its earnings? So if you have two businesses and one business needs, uh, say, uh, $10 in assets to produce $1 worth of earnings, and the second business needs only $5 in assets to produce $1 worth of earnings, uh, then the first business earns only 10% on, uh, on its assets, whereas the second business is able to earn 20% on its assets. So other, other things being equal, the second business is better than the first business. So it's very important 
to not just look at a business's earnings, but to look at how much assets are required to produce those earnings. And uh, uh, the place where you look up how much assets uh, a company has and how much assets the company uses is, is the balance sheet. So that is one key purpose of the balance sheet to uh, figure out uh, how much in assets a business needs uh, to produce $1 worth of earnings. Uh, the, the second key purpose of the balance sheet is to figure out where all these assets are coming from. Uh, so for example, uh, let's, let's say a business uh, is able to produce uh, $1, uh, $5 worth of assets. Now, if all these $5 of assets have to come from the owners of the business. So the owners have to put up this $5 in order for the business to earn $1. Then the owners are getting a 20% return from this business. But suppose uh, the business is such a wonderful business that four of these $5 are coming from, say, the suppliers of the business or the, uh, the customers of the business or something like that. So four of these $5 don't have to be put up by the owners. The owners have to put up only $1 of their own money. And they earn $1 every year from the business. So this is like a, a business that earns suddenly a 20% earner on assets uh, becomes a 100% earner for the owners because they put up $1 of capital and they earn uh, $1 every year. So that's a 100% return. So even though this business earns only 20% on assets, uh, the owners will get a 100% return from owning this business. So uh, it's not just important to figure out how much assets a business needs. It's also important to look at where these assets are coming from. How much of these assets have to be put up by the owners? How much of it comes from, say, borrowed money, uh, debt? And how much of it comes from float, which is capital that is provided to a business uh, by its suppliers, customers, uh, the government, its employees, and, and so on. So that information is available on the liability side of the balance sheet. So that is the second key reason to look at a balance sheet. Uh, now, these are the two reasons I covered in my, in my thread. Uh, but there is also a third key reason, uh, which I didn't uh, mention in my thread because uh, the thread was getting a little too long. Uh, so the third key reason is uh, sort of a special insight that, uh, that's available only to people who tune into this call. Uh, it's to figure out, uh, how much surplus capital a business has. So a business may require only say $1 billion of uh, assets to conduct its uh, operations, but it may have $2 billion worth of capital um, on its balance sheet. So it, it may have a lot more assets, a lot more cash uh, than what it needs to conduct its business. And businesses that have this kind of dry powder, they have a lot of options in front of them. So they can go and acquire some other business uh, and that that will boost earnings over time, or they can simply return this one, uh, uh, this extra one billion that they don't need uh, back to investors, either through uh, dividends or buybacks or something like that. Uh, so this having this kind of extra cash um, and extra resources that gives the business a lot of optionality. And so looking at a balance sheet will also tell us uh, how much optionality is sort of available in the business to do. Uh, further things to either improve its competitive position or uh, increase its growth rate over time, things like that. So that is the third key reason to look at a balance sheet. Uh, so um, that 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 is basically all I wanted to say about uh, uh, the balance sheet in the in the introduction. I'm very curious to see uh, what what kinds of questions you have. So let's just 
go, go straight to the questions. Yeah, hi, Tin K. Um, so I, I pre- prepared a couple of questions, and I, I wanted to focus on the, the shareholders equity part of the balance sheet. And so I was looking at a few examples I pulled up, and I was trying to understand the difference between uh, additional paid-in capital and common stock or, or, or capital stock. And I figured out what the difference was by doing some research, but um, what, I, what I didn't understand yet was how additional paid-in capital I show increased for one, one particular company for the last seven years. Additional paid-in capital has increased year over year. To my understanding, additional paid in capital is obviously what they raised when they did the uh, original issuance. They're not issuing new shares every year, at least presumably. And then another company, for instance, Netflix, uh, it showed zero paid in capital and only common stock, which um, I didn't think was as common. So can you just speak to additional paid in capital and common stock? I know what the difference is, but I don't understand why they can increase or why one company can have only common stock and why one company can have increasing additional paying capital? Okay, uh, that, that's a great question. Um, now, I'm, I'm not an expert on, uh, on uh, the, the minutia of uh, the, the, this kind of accounting, but my broad understanding is that shareholders' equity is composed of uh, two, two main kinds of things. Uh, one is the capital that is contributed by the owners uh, of the company, and the second is whatever earnings that the company had that it has not yet distributed to its owners. So uh, if the owners contributed, say, $100 of capital to start a company, and then the company earned $10, but the company did not distribute that $10 to the owners, it uh, kept the $10 within the company, then uh, the shareholders' equity in the company will be $110 because uh, there's the $100 of capital plus the $10 of retained earnings. Now, a lot of companies, they issue shares uh, all the time. Um, So, uh, for example, if if a company goes and uh, gives uh, stock options to uh, its employees, um, then what what happens is, uh, so let's say uh, a company's stock may be trading at uh, $50 a share, um, and then uh, it it gives employees, um, certain senior executives and things like that, uh, it gives them the option uh, to buy uh, uh, shares of the company at at the same fifty dollars a share, say, um, and then uh, over a period of time, these options uh, will actually vest, which means the employees can now exercise these options. And let's say at the time that uh, the options vest, uh, the the shares have grown from fifty dollars to hundred dollars. Now, this employee, if you look at it from the employee's perspective, he has the option to buy shares at uh, $50 a share, but these shares are trading at $100 a share in the market. So what what he's going to do is he's going to take these $50, uh, he's going to take $50 of his own money, give it to the company and get uh, get a share of the company in exchange. Uh, If you look at it from the company's perspective, what the company does is it doesn't doesn't cost the company anything in cash to uh, issue an extra share and give it to uh, this employee, right? So what the company is going to do is um, it's just going to print an extra share. It's the share is like a, the company's own currency. It can print extra shares anytime it wants. So what the company does is it it will print this um, uh, this extra share and give it to uh, this employee. So the employee has given up fifty dollars of cash to the company, 
Um, and in exchange, he has got one share of the company, which is worth $100 in the market. Uh, the company has got this $50 from the employee, but it has not yet, uh, it, it has not uh, spent anything in, in cash. It has just issued a share out of thin air and given it to the employee. So now the question is, how should the company account for this $50 on its balance sheet? Because it now has $50 more of cash. And my understanding is that this $50 goes uh, to uh, additional paid in capital. And uh, so, so, uh, so, so if you look at, uh, it's not retained earnings. This $50 is not something that was earned by the company uh, that it is retaining. Uh, it is capital that is put up uh, by the owners, but not at the time the company was created. Uh, it, it is uh, capital that is put up later. Uh, so my understanding is all that kind of capital that that goes into uh, additional paid in capital. That that's my understanding. Okay, thanks for explaining that. Um, sure. Further, um, you talked about uh, uh, the examples that you had on your thread and Twitter. And, uh, you know, obviously a, a dollar for five is better than a dollar for 10. Um, when, you're t- when you're calculating a return on assets, do you typically include intangibles and goodwill or do you, do you, do you, do you more prefer the return on tangible assets? Ah, that, that is a wonderful question. Uh, yes. So uh, there, there are specific circumstances under which you should look at return on tangible assets. And there are other circumstances under which you should look at return on total assets. Um, now, uh, let me give you an example. So, suppose you have a company. Uh, let's say it's got $1 of, uh, 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 let's say it's got um, uh, $10 of tangible assets on which it's, uh, it's earning, say, $5, right, every year. Okay. So that, that company is achieving um, a, a 50% return on tangible assets. But suppose you want to go and buy this company. Um, then uh, you may not be able to buy this company for the tangible assets. So it's got $10 of tangible assets, but you may not be able to buy it for $10. You may, you may have to pay $20 to buy this company, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, when you buy this company for $20, your return is not going to be 50%. Even though the company earns 50% on its tangible assets, you bought the company for twice tangible assets. So you will earn only 25% on um, on this uh, company, uh, on this particular investment. Um, now, that is if the company doesn't grow at all, right? If the company just takes its earnings and gives it to you every year, then um, you, you will earn 25% because you bought this company for $20. Uh, it has $10 of tangible assets on which it earns $5. So it's like you spend $20 to acquire this company and you're getting back $5 every year. That's a 25% return. But suppose this company could uh, reinvest those $5. So instead of giving those $5 to you as a dividend or something like that, suppose the company can take this $5 and reinvest it back into itself at the same 50% return that it achieves on the other tangible assets that it has. So, so after one year, what's going to happen is it's going to... Uh, it's, it's, uh, in the first year, the company had $10 of tangible assets and on which it earned $5. Then the second year, it's going to take these extra $5 and now it has $15 of tangible assets on which it's going to earn $7.5. And suppose the company does this for a long time. It reinvests all its earnings back into itself to keep growing and it is able to achieve that 50% return on all 
not just the original tangible assets but also all the new tangible assets that are constantly being added to the company every year now if the company is able to do this then your return from owning this company will be closer to the 50% over a long period of time whereas if the company is not able to reinvest your return will only be 25% so uh, whether to look at uh, the return on tangible assets or the return on total assets if the company can reinvest earnings at uh, whatever uh, return it is earning right now on tangible assets then you have to look at return on tangible assets but if the company cannot reinvest um, money then you have to look at return on total assets uh, because now now that you've acquired this company for um, uh, for 20 dollars that that extra 10 dollars uh, sort of goes into the goodwill account if if you if you are a company and you acquire this other company by paying $20 for it, uh, when it has only $10 of tangible assets, you're, you're going to record an extra $10 in goodwill. Uh, and your return will be only 25% if that company can't reinvest. So you have to look at return on total assets, not return on tangible assets. Whereas if that company can reinvest, you have to look at return on tangible assets, not return on total assets. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you for that. Uh, I got a couple more questions, but I'll let the other guys sure. jump circle back. Okay, all right. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, so the next uh, caller is uh, uh, Rehertz. Hi, Tenke. Hello. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, so first one, uh, uh, to pick up on uh, shareholders' equity. <clears throat> so... Um, um, and I want to know if my thinking is correct. So shareholders' equity is uh, assets minus liabilities. And so from that, I conclude that everything what is in shareholders' equity must be in some, for, in some form found in assets. So I find um, retained earnings in shareholders' equity. And um, I wanted to, 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 to ask you... Um, I kind of, I kind of understand how they are cal- calculated. My question is, can um, retained earnings? Maybe you can explain how they are ca- calculated, and can they um, these earnings decrease if if company is profitable? Um, so that that would be my first question. Okay. Uh, so do you want me to uh, sort of answer yep. the first question yep. first? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, right. Uh, so. Um, this, this is a wonderful question, and um, there are actually there, there's actually a point of uh, confusion here uh, because I have met two different kinds of people, uh, f- finance uh, accounting professionals. Um, some of them, when they say liabilities, they, they say that a balance sheet has two sides: the assets side and the liabilities side. And when they talk about the liability side of the balance sheet. They include the shareholders' equity also on the liabilities side. So it's actually liabilities and shareholders' equity that is included, and they just call it liabilities side of the balance sheet. Um, the second kind of accountant actually has uh, to them uh, assets, liabilities, and shareholders' equity are three different things. So to them, a balance sheet actually has three sides to it assets, liabilities, and shareholders' equity. And uh, so these guys, when they talk about liabilities, uh, the they, they will not 
they they mean only debt and float and things like that. They don't mean uh, the shareholders' equity. So to the first kind of accountant who includes the shareholders' equity in the liabilities, uh, when the first kind of accountant says total assets equals total liabilities, the balance sheet should balance. Uh, what he actually means is that total assets equals uh, liabilities plus shareholders equity, but he's bunching up the shareholders equity as part of the liabilities. Uh, the second kind of accountant would say, no, no, assets, total assets is not equal to total liabilities. Total assets equals total liabilities plus shareholders equity, because he considers that shareholders equity as a separate component. It's not included in the liabilities. So uh, this is a little bit of a point in, um, it, it's a question of convention whether you include it in liabilities or not. And I've seen some accountants actually do uh, use it interchangeably also. So you really have to get it from the context. Uh, now, the, sec the, the real question about uh, retained earnings. Uh, now, uh, the, the, the core concept behind retained earnings is, is very simple. So if a company has, say, uh, $100 of assets and, uh, say, $50 of uh, liabilities, its equity is is fifty dollars. Um, now suppose the company goes and earns ten dollars on this hundred dollars of assets that it has. Uh, now the company, uh, let, let's say for simplicity, that all this ten dollars uh, comes to the company in cash. Now, now if you look at the assets of the company, it's got hundred and ten dollars, right? And the liability still remain the same at fifty dollars. So now, if you do the assets minus liabilities, uh, now you get uh, $60 as shareholders equity. Uh, so what is that $10? So the $10 is what the company has earned and not yet distributed to its owners. And so that $10 is retained earnings. And that retained earnings appears as an increase in shareholders equity because uh, if you look at the shareholders equity at the beginning, it was $50. Now it is $60. So the difference is $10. And that $10 is exactly the $10 that the company has earned. And that is how retained earnings sort of shows up as an increase in shareholders equity. Now, can retained earnings decrease with time? Uh, yes, retained earnings can decrease with time. Uh, uh, well, so so the, the most obvious way for the retained earnings to de decrease with time is if the company makes a loss, right? Uh, if the company loses $10, then uh, shareholders equity will come down by $10 and the retained earnings will, will decrease. Uh, but even if the company is profitable, uh, retained earnings can still decrease with time. And that's what happened, for example, with uh, Starbucks. Uh, so I shared Starbucks's balance sheet in, in my thread. If you go and look at uh, the retained earnings portion of Starbucks's balance sheet, it's actually negative. And how can retained earnings be negative? Well, um, suppose uh, Starbucks earns $1 billion. So this is just an example. Starbucks doesn't earn $1 billion. It's closer to $3 billion or something per year. But let, let's just say Starbucks earns $1 billion, right? And uh, instead of giving away just this $1 billion, instead of distributing this $1 billion to the owners, Suppose Starbucks goes and borrows another $2 billion. So now it has 3 billion, right? There's 1 billion of earnings that it has plus the 2 billion of borrowed money. And then it gives away this entire 3 billion to its owners. So now uh, Starbucks has earned only 1 billion, uh, but it has given away 3 billion to its owners, 2 billion of which came from borrowed money. So now what has happened is retained earnings has actually uh, gone down, right? Um, 
simply because uh, um, the, the the three billion that the owners got, not all of it is uh, comes from earnings. So now uh, the the retained earnings component uh, has actually gone gone down. Even though Starbucks was profitable, it did earn the one billion dollars. So that that's how retained earnings can go down over time. If a company borrows money, or if it just uses the cash on hand um, to to repurchase shares or to issue a dividend that is in excess of whatever the company earns. So the company does more of repurchases or more of dividends than what it earns, then the retained earnings component of shareholders equity will go down. Okay, thank you. And second, uh, quick question is um, your comment on, on a quote from Charlie Munger I recently read is um, quote is, um, liabilities are always 100% good. It's assets we need to worry about. And and how I see it is uh, uh, he's worried about like, quote unquote, fake assets, like um, uh, it's hard to tell whether goodwill is the amount it is. It's hard to tell if inventory is the amount it is. It's hard to tell if intangibles are uh, amount they are stated. Right. That's 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 right. Yeah, that's my understanding is correct, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. So the assets on a balance sheet can be overstated. Um, so it, it may not even be something as sinister as fraud or uh, something like that. Of course, when a when a company commits fraud, it typically overstates assets on on its balance sheet. Um, but it, it may not even be fraud. Uh, a company may rec- record inventory at cost, for example. So. Um, uh, say, say, suppose Starbucks buys coffee worth one billion dollars, and that uh, that coffee beans uh, sits uh, on its books at, at one billion dollars. But then the price of coffee suddenly crashes for some reason. Um, then uh, these coffee beans, which are sitting on Starbucks's balance sheet, which are recorded at one billion dollars, are not actually worth one billion dollars. If Starbucks wanted to sell these coffee beans, uh, they won't get one billion dollars for it because the price of coffee has gone down. So. Um, but, but they're still sitting on the books at, at $1 billion, at least until uh, they are reappraised or something like that. Uh, so things like this happen all the time. And uh, so the assets side of the balance sheet, uh, some assets on it may be overstated. Um, but of course, the liability side, unfortunately, you know, uh, if, if Starbucks has borrowed $1 billion, uh, it's not like uh, that, that $1 billion of debt is suddenly going to vanish or something like that. Uh, there's no way to overstate it or under, understate it. So it, the liabilities are probably correctly stated on, on the balance sheet. So that, that's what Munger uh, meant when he said that. Okay, thanks. Sure. Uh, the, the next question uh, again, again comes from Casey. Yeah, hi. A, a follow-up question on uh, what you were talking about earlier. So if, if Starbucks takes a billion in inventory, um, is that marked on the balance sheet at cost to acquire the beans or the sales price in which they'll sell the beans at? Well, um, so when, when Starbucks acquires the beans, it usually doesn't, uh, well, it, it does sell part of the beans, but but then it's, it's going to sort of process those beans and make uh, beverages and then sell the sell the beverages, right? So inventory, when, when Starbucks acquires it, is usually accounted for uh, at cost, but Sometimes uh, companies can mark down the value of the inventory. So if the price of coffee 
um, drastically decreases or something like that, then Starbucks may decide that uh, it's going to mark down its inventory. So um, that that's usually the way it works. So if so if you're a furniture if you're a furniture retailer and you've got you've got finished inventory, right. you're, are you marking it at the cost it took to build that inventory or the markup price of what you sell it to the customer? Uh, right. So um, when when you have uh, so, so the general rule of thumb is uh, you you acquire raw materials, right, and mm-hmm. then you process those raw materials uh, to uh, make them into uh, finished products. Yep. And uh, when you uh, process those raw materials, uh, whatever cost it took you to not just acquire the inventory, but also to process the, uh, uh, the raw materials into the finished product, that all is included uh, in inventory. So my understanding is that uh, um, if, if a furniture company buys, buys wood for, say, uh, $100 and then puts in $50 of labor, to, to make that wood into something, um, in, into a, uh, I don't know, a desk or something like that, um, then uh, that desk is sitting on inventory at uh, uh, at $150 because $100 for the raw materials and $50 for the labor. And then when it sells the desk for, say, $200, uh, then inventory is subtracted by $150. And then um, let's say it sells it for cash. Cash is increased by uh, 200 because uh, the company now got uh, $200 of cash and the the $50 is is uh, profit so so $50 uh, will, will will go into uh, earnings on the on the income statement or something uh, that that's usually the way it goes okay i understand i was thinking i was just wondering if they kept it on their inventory at 200 since that's the sales price but you you explained it so thank you for that um right right exactly so uh, it's at you, cost yep in, in your thread uh, so the the next question comes from uh, Vinod. Hi, Tanke. How are you? Hello. Hi, Tanke. Can you hear me now? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking time and uh, writing uh, such a wonderful thread. It really helped for novice people like me to understand um, how to read the balance sheet. Thanks for doing this. Uh, my uh, question absolutely. is basically... My question is basically in two parts. Um, one is on the um, um, ho- what to look in the balance sheet, basically the potential red flags. Uh, uh, how do we, uh, the metrics, like how, how do we judge this balance sheet as really good, uh, healthy balance sheet? Uh, if we can throw some lights on the key parameters that we need to look uh, to classify whether the balance, the business is really Good or not, uh, that is my first question. And second question is on the um, SAP dilutions, right? When, when when we try to do equity dilution and also um, the repurchase of shares, um, how it really impacts the the balance sheet, and how do we measure uh, if, if there is any impacts at all, or if, if there is any impact in these kind of activity? How do we uh, where do we look at these attributes or these kind of uh, um, actions uh, taken by uh, company how do we how what is getting reflected in the balance sheet? Uh, sure so the red flags on the balance sheet um, you know rehards already mentioned this uh, this quote by charlie munger saying that assets can be overstated and uh, liabilities are always 100% <laughs> true so um, yeah so 
there are definitely uh, some some companies where the assets are um, they, they tend to be overstated and uh, so you uh, you sort of have to have a sense of uh, you know what what the assets are really worth and what they are listed uh, on the balance sheet for uh, and and sometimes uh, they are worth much less than uh, what they are listed on the balance sheet for typically uh, this this is in the form of uh, goodwill assets because uh, any any other asset um, like inventory or uh, receivables or something like that, uh, that there's there's a way of determining uh, the the value uh, of the assets and if the value is too far from um, uh, what is stated on the balance sheet that sooner or later the company will have to um, uh, report. Uh, so, some kind of impairment charge and uh, take that impairment charge to the assets. Um, th- this is assuming that the company is not not fraudulent or anything like that. Uh, if the company is fraudulent, then they may try to uh, not take that impairment charge for as long as possible. Uh, now, uh, it, with goodwill, um, so w- what exactly is goodwill? When, when uh, one company, say company X, uh, goes out and buys another company, company Y, and company X pays... Uh, more than tangible assets for company Y, then the difference between um, what what they pay and what what the assets they acquire are worth, that becomes uh, that that is what is recorded as goodwill on the on the balance sheet, and so companies can overpay for acquisitions and uh, historically there have been lots and lots of examples where companies went out and acquired other companies at uh, ridiculous prices. And so uh, the goodwill account on the balance sheet uh, could uh, could have uh, you know billions of dollars in there, uh, but the 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 assets that are acquired aren't really worth billions of dollars or anything like that. Uh, so goodwill may be vastly overstated. So th- those are kinds of red flags that you look for uh, in a balance sheet. The second thing I look for is uh, if if the debt. A component on the balance sheet is is too large uh, in in relation to the company's earnings and and so on. Then I like to dig a little bit deeper, and I try to find out okay what exactly uh, does servicing the debt require. So a- any debt is going to come with a series of obligations for the company. So you have to read the notes to the financial statements to sort of figure out okay uh, if a company has say. Uh, 10 billion dollars worth of debt i think starbucks has 13 13 billion or something like that in in debt right so you have to go and figure out okay of this 13 billion how much of this 13 billion is coming due in the next uh, one year how much of it is coming due in the next two years and and so on so there'll be a repayment schedule for this debt and there'll be interest payments that are due and uh, the question to ask is okay can starbucks uh, raise enough cash can can they generate enough cash through their normal operations um, uh, to to pay off all these uh, principal and interest payments that will come due periodically as a result of having all this debt? So uh, if the answer is no, or if you think the answer is maybe maybe not, then uh, that that may not be a good company to uh, to invest in because uh, they may or may not raise be able to raise enough cash. To cover their debt, so th- those are the kinds of red flags that I that I look for. So just just because a company has a lot of debt doesn't immediately make it uh, uh, not a good investment because debt these days is very very cheap. Um, but if the company cannot raise, uh, cannot generate enough cash to pay off the debt, 
and instead it has to rely on issuing more and more debt uh, in order to pay off the current debt that that is generally uh, not not going to end well sooner or later that that party has to stop and uh, so so those those are not the kind of companies that i would like to uh, invest in uh, the the second question is what what happens when a company does a buyback uh, so so let's say uh, starbucks again uh, uh, spent spends a billion dollars uh, buying back its shares now uh, this is 1 billion dollars of uh, uh, cash that starbucks has on its balance sheet prior to the buyback but after doing the buyback uh, it no longer has this uh, billion billion dollars right so what what happens is on the asset side uh, the picture is very clear uh, the uh, the cash component of the assets is going to go down by 1 billion dollars but of course the balance sheet has to balance so on the liabilities uh, side as well if you take the liabilities plus the shareholders equity that also has to go down by 1 billion dollars because the assets have gone down by 1 1 billion dollars right so what happens in this case is uh, shareholders equity um, has has gone down by uh, uh, will go down uh, by 1 billion dollars so that that's basically what happens when a company does a buyback and uh, that's why if you if you look at starbucks's shareholders equity it's actually negative right now and why why is it negative because they've um, spent so much more uh in buybacks uh than what they uh, than what they raised from the owners so uh that that that's basically why uh, starbucks's shareholders equity was actually taken negative they 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 borrowed money and then uh they used the borrowed money to do buybacks and and so their shareholders equity is negative now uh, does that answer the questions great thank you and just one follow on the uh, float capital so i think somebody mentioned maybe in your thread or maybe in your talk you mentioned uh, float capital is uh, free money but it is in in case of insurance businesses associated with the risk right because they are trying to uh, write uh, um underwrite based on the uh, the business model right so why why do you say the the float capital is is, is free it does have Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. So, so float float capital is not risk free uh, by yeah. any any means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I, I said that float float capital is okay. risk free. There there are definitely risks associated with okay. float capital. Okay. Uh, it depends on the kind of float capital, of course. So, if a if an insurance company uh, it collects it insures a very big risk but doesn't collect an insufficient uh, doesn't collect a sufficient premium for it. then um it it may get some float capital out of it but then uh it's it's gone and insured this big risk and if this big risk comes to pass they're going to face an underwriting loss right uh so so uh, that that sort of thing is is a risk with float capital the the other kind of uh if you if you don't look at insurance companies if you just look at um other kinds of companies where uh, you know they have um, uh, float capital that that's in the form of accounts uh, accounts payable or uh, yeah, wages payable or something like that uh, that that is also uh, a kind of risky capital because um if uh, if, if let's say uh, th- this particular company is dealing with a supplier and uh, it has accounts payable to the supplier of uh, say say uh, uh, 500 million dollars or something like that the supplier may say uh, okay you owe us 500 million dollars and uh, now we want to renegotiate our terms and uh, so we want to get paid more quickly than what we are being paid right now and 
it depends on how much control this company has over the supplier. If, if the supplier has a lot of other, other companies to supply to, uh, who are willing to give the supplier better terms than this particular company, then this company doesn't have uh, enough power in that relationship. So uh, there, uh, th- that float capital uh, will will be at risk because they are not able to uh, renew that float capital at the same rate uh, that they previously had. So previously they might be they might have been able to take 60 days to pay their suppliers. Now maybe they'll have to pay their supplier in in 30 days. So uh, so, so then accounts payable uh, would have to come down to, to reflect that. So uh, there are all these uh, risks associ- associated with uh, float capital. Uh, it's, it's not risk-free by, by uh, okay. any stretch of the imagination. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Sure. Much appreciated. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so so the, the next question comes from uh, Tayoma. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Hey, thank you. Thanks for hosting this. Um, got a couple of questions. Um, first question is, um, in your thread, you talked about uh, um, returns on assets and, uh, you know, how two different businesses would earn, you know, one has less assets and it can make the same money. Um, I was curious about the other ratio um, that I got interested in recently, which is return on uh, invested capital. And uh, just wanted to see your thoughts about, do you think that ratio perhaps um, is a more interesting ratio to look at? Because that way, my understanding is you look at net income, less dividends, and you divide it by uh, debt and equity. Um, and I could perhaps show you some different uh, picture about the company. And then kind of a follow-up onto that is, what would you say is a good um, ratio for companies in terms of return on work on invested capital? I heard something about 20 25% is typically um, considered a good ratio, a good business to invest in. If a company can, you know, continuously earn twenty to twenty-five percent on its invested capital, uh, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yes, uh, twenty to twenty-five percent on on the face of it, uh, it it does uh, uh, seem like a very good return on invested capital. But you have to sort of uh, distinguish between uh, sort of ca- capital that comes uh, from the owners and capital that is uh, available in the form of uh, float or something like that. So um, I like to look at both return on assets and uh, return on invested capital. I I actually look at several return ratios and we we have uh, one one episode uh, that that we did on this podcast with with Sahil Ketpal about um, uh, various kinds of return ratios and when each one is uh, applicable and and things like that. Uh, So when you take any return ratio, um, th- there are different kinds of flavors and different people calculate uh, return ratios in different ways. For, to take a quick example, what, what you just said, uh, you, you will take the earnings and then subtract out the, the dividends, right? Now, that, that kind of calculation, that has actually never made much sense to me. Why why are those dividends being subtracted out? So if, if a company is able to earn, say, $5 on uh, $100 of assets, and then uh, that, that company is earning 5% on assets, right? Just because it gives uh, gives three of those $5 uh, to its owners as a, as a dividend, I mean, company is still earning 5, 5% on assets. They, they just choose to give three of, the, three of it back to the owners. So uh, it's not very clear to me why you would uh, subtract dividends out 
when you're calculating uh, either either return on assets or return on invested capital or uh, whatever. So uh, Warren Buffett, he, he likes to look at uh, return on tangible uh, invested capital. And so what he does is uh, he takes the uh, total assets on the on the balance sheet, tangible assets on the balance sheet, um, and uh, and then subtracts out uh, the the float component of the uh, of the liability uh, of the liability. So uh, if if a company has say hundred dollars in tangible assets, but say fifty dollars uh, in accounts payable or something like that then net tangible assets would be $50 because uh, $100 of tangible assets minus $50 of accounts payable is $50 of net tangible assets. And if the company is able to earn $10 a year on that $50 of net tangible assets, that's a 20% return. And Warren Buffett um, sets a lot of store by this particular uh, metric uh, for for companies. Uh, Does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I didn't think, like, I don't know why the dividends get subtracted as well. I was kind of curious about that. So that's, I was trying to see if you have, uh, like, I've seen many of these return on investment capital ratios um, and the way they, the formulas are working. And uh, I was just curious if you had one that you use. And um, so that Warren Buffett example you gave, I think that that's an interesting one. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. So there are, there are lots and lots of flavors of return on capital and, um, uh, so some some people, I mean, the, the the numerator is basically the return that you get, uh, how, how much cash you can take out of the of the business, um, and and the denominator is how much cash uh, that was contributed into the business, uh, uh, and you know how much cash can be taken out of a business. You can take reported earnings, or you can take pre-tax earnings, or you can take free cash flow. You can take owner earnings. There, there are so many different variants just for the numerator, and then. Again, there are so many different variants just for the denominator. You can take total assets or only the tangible component of the assets or uh, net tangible assets, which is subtracting out the float component of the liability. So, so there are large... Can you, take, of- can you do just do debt and equity? Like if you just sum debt and equity, would that make sense or is that something else? Uh, well, you, you can... Uh, so there, there is a return on equity, which is basically uh, the, 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 uh, the, the earnings... Uh, divided by just the equity portion of the capital, not the um, uh, not the total um, uh, t- total assets on the balance sheet, just the just just the part of the assets that is covered by equity. Uh, mm-hmm. You you can uh, do that as well, and return on equity is actually a fairly common uh, commonly used ratio. Uh, so so yes, there are lots and lots of flavors of return ratios, and which one is applicable to a particular situation. Uh, it's really uh, you have to understand the business to to figure out which one is more applicable than some some other one. Okay, thanks. Sure. Yeah, and then the last question is, um, I guess when you invest uh, in a particular business or company that you're researching, I know it's a difficult maybe question to answer, but is there some key you know ratios that you always look at, um, like just the key you know high level things that you, you assess for example maybe it's it's debt equity yeah you never look at something below a certain amount or maybe that return on investment capital ratio that i mentioned or just a couple of, i was wondering if you because it seems like you're a very smart guy so i just thought maybe you could share oh, some of the things thank you, look you so at. much <laughs> thanks yeah that's my last question no no you really put me on a spot because <laughs> i don't know how smart an answer i can give to, to this question so I, I try to understand uh, the economics of the business in question. Uh, 
and uh, so when i'm uh, reading about a company um, you know that i i invest in you know all, all kinds of different companies and uh, they they are at different uh, uh, stages of their life cycle some are early stage growth companies others are more mature companies so so the the kinds of metrics that i look for for uh, at in in one company they may be different from the kinds of metrics i look for in other companies but generally uh, what i am trying to figure out is if i buy the stock of the company at this price whatever price uh, uh, mr market is giving it to me at uh, what is my uh, future return going to be first of all uh, can i predict that future return with any reasonable degree of accuracy there are some businesses that i just don't understand i can't uh, i have no idea whether this is going to be a phenomenal investment or a, uh, or a total botch uh, so so i i stay away from th- those kinds of companies so the kinds of companies whose economics that i do understand uh, so starbucks for example is a company whose economics i can i can understand so they they buy coffee and they sell coffee and, <laughs> and so on it's simple enough for me to understand it uh but but if you ask me to analyze say wells fargo or something like that i just don't understand wells fargo or or goldman sachs or <laughs> these companies well enough to be able to uh, form any kind of opinion about them um so first and foremost i try to understand the company um the, the cash flows in the company so any any company is going to have a, a certain amount of capital that is in it uh it, and then on on the capital it's going to produce a certain amount of earnings and those earnings could be either uh, predictable or they they may not be predictable so i, I like to look at uh, you know uh, revenues um, and uh, margins and things like that so i i like companies that are able to sort of uh, exert a certain amount of control over their environment so i, I don't want a company that is um, very closely whose economics will go up and down based on uh, the price of oil or some, something like that uh, because that's just too difficult uh, uh, for me to predict what the future will will look like so uh, a company like starbucks for example if you, if you just look at the gross margins of starbucks for many many years uh, going uh, going back uh, you will see that for every 100 dollars that starbucks collects uh they they spend about 30 dollars on uh coffee and they spend another 40 dollars on store uh, store maintenance that is basically paying baristas and paying rent and and all that the store operations so um this uh 70 dollars that they spend on on both the raw materials and on um uh, st- store expenses that 70 dollars out of 100 dollars that ratio has remained very very stable for a very long time and this tells me that starbucks has a significant amount of control over its uh, suppliers and so on so even if the price of coffee goes up and down wildly starbucks uh, has enough pricing power and enough negotiating power and all that that uh, this 30% uh, 40% um, uh, ratio uh, that doesn't change much over time and i i like to invest in companies that are uh, sort of predictable that way uh, so so th- th- these are basically the kinds of things that i look for uh, good returns on capital um sensible policies for uh, using capital that is so so companies could earn billions of dollars but then if they just pile up those billions on the balance sheet without any key uh, without any immediate plans to use them 
uh, then I'm I'm a little bit wary about investing in those companies because I don't know what they'll do with all the cash they have, uh, and I, I don't know how long it'll take for investors to even even get that cash. So um, I, I I like to invest in companies that that are uh, either reinvesting cash back into themselves at a good rate of return, or uh, returning the cash back to owners uh, by doing either buybacks at a sensible price or uh, by dividends. So uh, these are for cash flow positive companies, companies that don't have uh, good avenues for reinvesting the cash. But uh, I've always also invested in companies that uh, that have no uh, reported earnings. Uh, reported earnings are actually negative. Uh, but um, I, I think they have good prospects going forward and I like uh, their cash flows. So earnings can be negative, but cash flows can be positive. Um, so companies like this, um, um, Typically, uh, I, I've invested in a few of these companies as well. So I look at a lot of different things and uh, maybe I should make a checklist at some point and, and publish it. Thank you. Yeah, that would be helpful. <laughs> sure. Uh, so so the, the next question comes from uh, Shashi. Hi, Ken. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Hi. Uh, so, uh, first of all, thank you uh, for that uh, amazing thread. I really enjoyed it. Uh, one thing uh, I wanted to ask you is, uh, you have mentioned about uh, the uh, operating leases that you have mentioned uh, that uh, you are not sure where to, how to classify it. Uh, I believe in 2019, I think the accountants made this change that uh, all, all leases have to be considered as debt. So, uh, I mean, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's uh, first question. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So, yes, there was this uh, change made, and uh, I, I don't know exactly when it came into effect, but 2019 sounds about right. Um, and uh, so, what happened was a lot of companies, like uh, uh, retailers, uh, co companies that had a, a lot of uh, physical locations. This, this includes uh, restaurants and uh, uh, the, the, uh, Starbucks, for example, Home Depot, companies that do that business out of a large number of physical locations. Uh, they all suddenly had to uh, have uh, uh, account for their lease liabilities on their balance sheet. And the general thought process is, okay, if a, if a company has signed a lease with a, with a landlord, uh, uh, say say a, a long term lease for the next ten years or something like that, then the company has basically committed to the landlord that it's going to pay a certain amount of money uh, as rent um, um, for for the duration of this lease or or whatever. And so since the company is committed to um, make the, these payments every every month or whatever, uh, that that is some kind of liability for the company. It's it's not. Um, it, it's it's an obligation uh, that the company has entered into. Um, so that that obligation is a is a liability, and in exchange for assuming this liability, the company has uh, got uh, something called a right of use. Uh, so so the company has got the right to use that property um, uh, for for that period of time. Uh, so this right of use is something like an asset that the company has got. Uh, in exchange for assuming this uh, this series of contractual payments, which is a liability. 
so there, there there was a particular way to account for this asset and account for these uh, liabilities and and so on and so uh, the upshot of all this was that if you uh, looked at the balance sheet before this change went into effect and if you look at the balance sheet after this change went into effect there suddenly a, a large asset uh, a right of use asset on the balance sheet and then there is similarly a large liability on the balance sheet and they are approximately equal to each other and they uh, they tend to uh, so so for the companies that i look at uh, these assets and liabilities are very close to each other and in relation to the, all the other assets the company has and uh, uh, things like inventory and receivables and all that if you just take this particular right of use asset and the corresponding liability and net them out the difference is not that much compared to uh, other kinds of assets the company has like inventory and so on so in my analysis um i usually just ignore both this asset and this liability uh, unless the difference is very big uh, and if the difference is very big uh, <laughs> i don't really know what to do <laughs> in that situation i i'll probably just put this company in my too hard pile <laughs> uh, so i i don't know whether to account for this as debt it's not really debt i mean they they don't pay interest on it or any anything like that so um it's also not float Uh, sure yeah, but uh, but if you are uh, trying to uh, i mean value a company uh, on its uh, on its uh, return on uh, invested capital or return on assets so do you uh, include this as an asset uh, because I, i don't include uh, this as an asset you don't include it okay no. okay I, but I, but uh, but my question is suppose this uh, company had to purchase this to produce this return then uh, technically it would be a poor business right uh well because it would because it would depend it to, it, yeah uh, so so it would depend on what price this asset is available for purchase at and um, so if this asset is available only for uh, so if it's a building in the middle of uh, new york or something like that that the company needs uh, mm-hmm. for some reason and uh, th- then yes if if it had to purchase the asset then its return on assets would would go down uh, because this asset would be so expensive but it doesn't really have to purchase this asset right <laughs> um, this asset is available at a certain price uh, from a landlord mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. yeah so, so but, i'm, I'm but not I'm exactly asking sure if you are if you are if you are comparing two similar businesses and one is using a leased asset and one had to purchase the same asset with its own money then right. when you compare these both there will be a drastic difference on their return uh, metrics uh, yes exactly uh, yeah uh, okay that is the first question uh, the, uh, the other question is uh, um what are the unique ways uh, a company can uh, improve its uh, working capital uh, i mean negative working capital is the best uh, i would say uh, because the reason i'm asking was recently i uh, i came across this uh, podcast where they were discussing about this company called autozone right. and they had this uh, they had this uh, sort of thing i never uh, came across it's called uh, i think the term is uh, supply chain financing so basically the buyer and the seller they have this intermediary bank uh, so the seller can uh, you know rather than wait for 30 days they can approach a bank and get their money back 
uh, at a discount and the uh, buyer can uh, extend uh, their accounts payables terms uh, like from 30 days to 60 days uh, because the bank gives that guarantee. You know, have you uh, come across any unique uh, situations like that? Uh, sure. Uh, so, so uh, yes, AutoZone is a is a wonderful uh, company and has been a wonderful company for a for a long time. Uh, they are very very efficient in their use of capital. Uh, so typically, um, the the way it works at AutoZone is they have so much in accounts payable. Uh, so so uh, AutoZone is an auto parts uh, retailer. So if you if you want to buy um, say I don't know brake fluid or something like that for your car, uh, you can go to them. Or if you if you take your car to uh, to a dealership or something like that, uh, uh, or, a, or or an auto body shop, the auto body shop probably buys their components from uh, either, either AutoZone or one of their competitors. Uh, so. The, the way AutoZone has sort of structured its business activities is that it wants to be super efficient in how it uses uh, its capital. So uh, they, they have to keep a large amount of inventory on hand because you can imagine that uh, there, there's a whole bunch of different cars, you know, Toyotas and Hondas and, and so on. And each each car has a different set of parts and, and things like that. So uh, this this the amount of inventory that they need to um, keep on hand or keep readily accessible in case a customer wants that uh, one particular part from a, a Honda 2008 or something like that, you know, um, they, they have to be able to get the part to wherever it needs to go very quickly and very efficiently. And so this is an enormous supply chain challenge. And uh, AutoZone has actually done a very, very good job in not just... Uh, so, so one one way to solve this problem is to just keep every part under the sun, right? <laughs> buy buy all these mm-hmm. parts and keep it. Uh, but that is a hopelessly inefficient way of solving this problem because then you will require an enormous amount of capital, and it's going to be tied up for an enormous amount of time. Uh, so you may buy this uh, Honda 2008 part or something like that and keep it. Uh, and you know a customer may come and ask for it, uh, say eight months later. Uh, and so your capital is sort of tied up for these eight months. And you know, unless you can sell this part for uh, say three times what you paid for it or something like that, um, the, your return on capital will be low. But AutoZone uh, has sort of negotiated with its suppliers, and uh, it uh, the, the accounts payable to the suppliers uh, actually exceeds uh, their inventory and receivables. Uh, so so uh, if if it's almost like uh, you you go to a supplier and then you uh, you get a part from them for free uh, you don't have to pay any cash uh, to the supplier at the time you get the part and then you go and sell this part to the customer um, and then you once you get the cash from the customer you then pay your supplier and uh, th- this uh, this means you don't have to put up any capital of your own but you still have pocketed the difference between what you paid the supplier and what you charge the customer, right? And uh, so, so they are doing something like this, and it's a, it's a very, very capital efficient model. And yes, you're right. Uh, so there, there are these supply chain financing uh, companies. So suppliers don't like to wait forever uh, to to get their capital mm. uh, back. Yeah. So what a supplier might say is, the supplier might go to a bank and say, "Look, I've I've sold 
this part to AutoZone and AutoZone will, will give me $100 for this part, but it's going to take eight months or whatever uh, to give me the, this $100. So can, can you give me $95 right now uh, so that mm-hmm. I, can, uh, I, I can use that to make more parts to sell, uh, sell to others or something like that? Uh, and then when AutoZone pays, pays me back this $100, uh, you, you can collect it and keep, keep the $5 for yourself. So a supplier, it might make sense for a supplier to enter into th- this kind of deal uh, with a supply chain financing company like a bank. And, and it might make sense for the bank to, to do this as well uh, because they, they pocket the $5 spread, right? Um, yeah, so yeah. so th- this kind of thing, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with it. But then again, uh, with AutoZone, it's probably not a big risk, but um, th- th- there could be other risks where, you know, some, some companies may not even pay their suppliers eventually. What, what if, um, yeah. you know, the supplier sold? I, th- I uh, think it, it has to be creditworthy to, uh, for the bank to, you know, take on this. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the buyer so the bank has to is be assuming a, a certain worthy. amount of risk. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Akinke. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the the next question uh, comes from um, Jam Eater. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, uh, first of all, uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Oh, I think you briefly touched upon this earlier. I wanted to get some more details. Uh, so, uh, have you looked at uh, which kind of uh, return metrics are uh, more relevant based on whether a company is in a cyclical business and specifically within that, like uh, where it is in the business or economic cycle. So that is uh, part one of the question. And the second part of the same question is, uh, have you also looked at like uh, how, uh, you know, different return metrics become uh, more important or less important where the company is in its own uh, life cycle, you know, uh, company with big growth and uh, a huge uh, total addressable market versus a mature company which is operating in a market which itself is not uh, growing a lot or uh, kind of uh, stagnant. Right, uh, exactly. So so these are wonderful questions. And uh, yes, uh, so over a period of time, uh, the return on uh, uh, the return on capital calculated in various ways um, th- that number uh, could change depending on two factors. One is um, the the broader economy itself. As the economy goes up and down, um, you know, companies that are cyclical, uh, which are tied to the economy, uh, this particular ratio that we calculate for these companies uh, is also going to go up and down and, and so on. Um, the second thing is as the companies themselves mature and evolve over time, this ratio may uh, go up or go down or or whatever, and you have to have a view about that. Um, So for cyclical companies, um, I like to look at a normalized uh, earnings power. So uh, the company may may earn a lot of money um, and and be able to return a lot of money to shareholders during good times. Uh, but then uh, when when the economy is slowing down or something like that, uh, the company may not be able to earn at the same level. So one one example is um, if, you, if you take a, a broker like uh, Charles Schwab, for example, um, 
so so the way charles schwab works is uh, it's got all this uh, client uh, it, it has a lot of different um, uh, ways of generating revenue uh, so one one way of re- uh, generating revenue is uh, uh, through transaction fees and and so on that it charges uh, people the other way is uh, when people have a lot of cash invested with uh, charles schwab they they are able to go and earn a return on this cash and they they give uh, the, the customers only a small portion of this return the other other part of the return they they keep it for themselves um uh, and they they also get paid for order flow and and things like that so so they they have lots of different sources of revenue but historically speaking uh the when when the when people do a large number of transactions in in the stock market uh Charles Schwab does very well, and when people uh, don't do a large number of transactions, then uh, Charles Schwab suddenly uh, gets into all kinds of problems. They have to lay off people, and they uh, uh, there's a whole host of uh, problems. Then net income drops, and and so on. Um, so uh, historically, this this is what has been the case, and so uh, this company, when uh, when markets are doing well and when markets are up. a lot of people like to do lots of transactions and this company does very well uh, but when when markets are down or something like that people don't even like to log into their brokerage accounts and so uh, charles schwab doesn't make a lot of money in during those times so you have to have some idea of if you're going to buy and hold a company for a long period of time you can't just uh, take a few good years uh, just because they happen to be recent years a few good years uh, they may actually be abnormal uh so it, it, it's always a good idea to try and understand uh, how can the current situation change and if the current situation changes what happens to the earnings power of, of a company so uh w- with a company like charles schwab I, i like to think about uh things like okay what what happens if uh, the the number of transactions executed by uh, people goes down 30% right because that's usually what happens in a in a bear market then the number of transactions goes down drastically so you have to have some view of the sensitivity of the business to uh, broader uh, conditions um, either in the markets or in the broader economy or something like that and so if if demand goes down 10% or 20% uh, whatever uh, seems like a reasonable number to you how is this company going to fare and is it still going first of all you know sometimes you know when when demand goes down 20% uh, the company may not even survive they they may go bankrupt there are companies like that uh, so you you wouldn't invest in those kinds of companies but other companies they would be hurt but then uh, their long term competitive position might actually be improved uh, because all their competitors would be driven out of business and so if if this is a company that uh, that manages its affairs prudently and its competitors don't then uh, when when something bad happens when when there's an economic downturn or something like that all the competitors will be driven out of business and this company will emerge out of that situation stronger mm-hmm. so you sort of have to have a view about all those things to uh, understand uh, uh, how how cyclicality is going to affect a, a company uh the the second thing is uh, what about the company itself evolving and maturing over time so uh, if if you take companies like microsoft and apple they are great examples of this they have successfully made the transition from uh, 
very hot growing uh, tech startups uh, to these mature companies that are returning enormous amounts of money back to shareholders in the form of dividends, buybacks, and so on. So typically what happens is as, as the company matures, uh, its uh, growth rate is going to uh, go down over time. And it's uh, 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 generally speaking, uh, it's going to find less uses for capital. So it may not be able to reinvest all of its earnings back into itself uh, to achieve uh, good returns because uh, th- that much growth is just not there to be had uh, for this company. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Just because growth uh, slows uh, doesn't mean that uh, the company is not going to give a good return to its owners. So growth is only one component of return. And uh, the, the the most important thing is, um, uh, is free cash flow going to be uh, steady or is, is free cash flow going to grow moderately over a period of time? And is the company not going to do silly things to go and chase growth? Uh, so, so for example, uh, m- many people who are argued that M- Microsoft's acquisition of Skype uh, did not make any sense. Uh, they, they acquired uh, Skype for billions of dollars and then they didn't do very much with it. And uh, uh, so, so it, it did not make much sense. And that, that might have been an indication of, you know, um, uh, the, the growth in the primary business uh, slowing as um, the, the number of Windows licenses that they were able to sell every year and so on. Uh, once everybody had a computer, uh, that, that growth was slowing. And so um, if, if a company does silly things to chase growth, that's usually a bad sign. Uh, but if you have confidence in the management that uh, they're still going to uh, do their best to keep returns high, even if growth slows, and they're going to do intelligent things when it comes to capital allocation. Uh, the the company may still be a very good investment uh, over a long period of time, even uh, without enough, uh, without much growth in front of it. So you have to have a view about all these different things. And I I try to understand the quality of the management and how they think. If the management writes, uh, if the, if they uh, if the CEO makes a presentation or somewhere something like that, if the CEO writes shareholder letters. Uh, explaining how he thinks about the business. If he these days, a lot of CEOs come on popular podcasts to talk about their business and how they think about it, and so on. Uh, if if those kinds of materials are available, I would I would definitely listen to them to try and find out uh, how they think about the business and and things like that. So uh, yeah, so I I do all these different things to try and understand how companies evolve in their life cycle. Uh, so so the next question question uh, comes from uh, Tioma again. So uh, we, are, we are already in, at an hour and a half. So let's let's make this the last question. Oh, hi there. Uh, sorry, I just lost a question quick. Um, when you're talking about assets on the balance sheet, um, I was looking at some companies that um, some of the assets they own, these are like investment type of companies. So they actually hold securities. So marketable securities, for example, stocks, right? right. I'm curious, when they report them on their balance sheet, Kind of similar to the furniture question you had before was, do they they have to uh, mark them to market, right? Because uh, otherwise it would be, um, it could either be understated or overstated. I just wonder if you could talk about how uh, mark to market component plays into marking up of assets and stuff, the different type of things. Uh, yes, absolutely. So companies that have a lot of surplus capital, uh, they tend to buy marketable securities with, with that capital. And uh, um, so what, what, 
on on the day the the balance sheet is being prepared or something like that whatever the value of that uh, of those marketable securities is so the the definition of marketable security is that uh, there's a price for it in the market right and whatever the market price for that security is uh, that that is what the balance sheet uh, has to reflect uh, but yes you're absolutely right so um, uh, companies have to report um, uh, the, the the marketable securities component especially if the companies own stocks and things like that uh, the value can fluctuate over time and uh, uh, the fluctuations can actually be pretty wild and recently uh, there was a change in the accounting where the change in the value of the marketable securities uh, actually had to go through the income statement as well so this affected companies like berkshire for example so in in one particular quarter or something like that if if berkshire's portfolio increased by say 20 billion dollars uh, which which is definitely possible for a company that has what um, uh, 300 400 billion dollars in uh, in stocks it's possible for the value to go up 20 billion or go down 20 billion so earnings for that particular quarter will be uh, if, if the stocks go up 20 billion the earnings have to reflect 20 billion uh, but that's not really earnings for the for the company right uh, for berkshire it's just a change in the value of the securities so uh, this this uh, this kind of thing reporting securities on the balance sheet and re- reporting uh, them through the uh, changes in values of the security through the income statement this tends to distort uh, the the true economic picture and so when when you're trying to analyze these companies you have to uh, find a way of uh, compensating for that distortion maybe just uh, take out the component of the earnings that came from just an appreciation in the value of the securities or whatever or uh, have some view about uh, how much these securities uh, are really worth in terms of intrinsic value or in terms of look through earnings or um, yeah, the, the these concepts so you you have to have some view about that if you are analyzing companies that have lots of marketable securities but for example for your example of starbucks they sell coffee right so they have coffee as a inventory and right. you said they would report it at their cost however there is a contract for coffee in the market right like coffee is a, has a futures for example contract that the coffee gets traded right. would you not make an argument that maybe they should be reporting it as to the fair value of what whatever the futures uh, contract for coffee is because they could technically uh-huh. sell the that uh, commodity, I guess I'm maybe talking not even marketable securities, but just anything commodity. Um, I think generally the idea is that you would report it at at the lower of uh, either the cost or uh, the value of the item on the on the market. Okay. Uh, So this this is uh, this is not really a marketable security in the sense. I mean, if you have a bunch of coffee beans, uh, I, I don't know if that qualifies as a marketable security. A futures contract uh, to buy coffee beans uh, at some time in the future for a certain price, uh, that may be a marketable security. But the coffee beans that are sitting in inventory right now, uh, that that is not really a marketable security, right? Uh, so, so, um, so they they would be accounted for differently, I believe. Okay. Sure. Sure. So uh, thank you all very much for uh, showing up and um, listening to this call. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that uh, you guys uh, learned something useful as well and had fun discussing the balance sheet. Uh, See you all next week.
Thank you very much. Bye-bye.